Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined now by Seb Stafford-Bloor. Hi Joe. Hello. Today, Seb and I were joined by Adam Crafton, writer extraordinaire for The Athletic. And uh, Adam recently was the lead writer on a special investigation into Hull City. So today's podcast is all about what that investigation turned out and towards the end, how the club themselves responded to it. Uh, Seb, would you like to take me through what we just talked about with Adam? Well, broadly, Hull, um, as a club, Hull has been at war with its public for quite a long time. Um, I don't want to step on uh, um, Adam's article at all, but uh, it has a genesis in Dr. Assem Alam, uh, the owner, his his desire to rename the club Hull Tigers. Um, And it's gradually got more angry and more unstable and more irate between the two sort of warring factions ever since. And just Um, weird in parts. I think so. There's all sorts of strange details, like the opportunity to sell the club and then people backing out of sales and making accusations about potential buyers. Um, we also have a you know, chair of the Supporters Trust making accusations about how much money the um, the LM family make out of Hull City through the uh, repayment structure on their loans. It's a super interesting episode. Adam's great. Adam, um, Adam, Adam. I highly recommend after after listening, do um, do read his article in its entirety. Yeah, in fact, you can do that uh, and get a thirty day free trial to do so by visiting theathletic.com forward slash tifo. It really is worthwhile. Um, and also, there's I mean, God, there's, there's a number of other pieces which are uh, just as in depth and just as interesting related to other clubs. I'm thinking recently of a, a piece that was released by the team of Arsenal writers Amy Lawrence, James McNicholas, and David Ornstein on our Teta as well. A lot of stuff behind the scenes there. Um, as football's been restarting, it feels like uh, the athletic has an eye behind the iron curtain in a way that um, is just so fascinating, Seb. Can I give a little bit of a plug for George Corkin's article? He wrote yes, a lovely piece on which was released on Father's Day, so ten days ago now. Uh, about his early experiences watching football with his dad. Uh, so a very moving piece of writing. Okay. Uh, well, as I said, that is theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, 30-day free trial uh, to read at your whim for a month. Uh, and we're very confident that you will enjoy it and join us uh, and the, the many, many people who are reading The Athletic. Right. Without further ado, uh, we leave you in the, uh, the warm embrace and the cool hands of Adam Crafton. Quick disclaimer, after we recorded this podcast on Friday, Ihab Alam participated in a radio interview with the BBC, addressing some of the points that arose from The Athletic's story. That interview is available to listen to online. The Athletic stands by its original story and its investigation into the club. Adam Crafton, who is a Sem Alam? How did he make his money? How did he come to own Hull City? Um, and also, just because we're aware that some people listening um, won't know a great deal about the city of Hull, uh, can we just contextualise the place as well and how it contrasts with the average uh, Premier League cities? Yeah, so I mean, Hull is probably somewhere between Yorkshire and the northeast um, on Humberside, and. Asem Alam came to came to buy the club um, at the start of this decade when the club were in huge financial difficulty. They were facing winding up orders um, at the time. They had huge bills which needed to be to be paid. And Asem Alam was is a local businessman. Um, 
He moved over here from Egypt in the 1960s. Um, as a youngster in, in the 1960s in Egypt, he'd been an outspoken critic of uh, Colonel Nasser. Um, and, you know, he's told, I think he told the BBC before that he was arrested at the time. He, he was tortured. Um, so in many ways, he should be an amazing immigration story um, for, for the city of Hull because he escaped to England. He studied at the local university in Hull. Uh, he worked for a local company, which he then bought um, for himself, which, is, uh, which manufactures and supplies generators. I think when he first came to England, he had something like £20 to his name because the currency um, was unable to be, cha- uh, to be transferred over. So he, he really had to start with nothing when he came over here. And then I think according to the most recent rich list, his family has a fortune of over 200 million pounds. And, you know, he, he is hugely influential in the, in the local area. He's put 10 million pounds into a cancer research unit um, at the local university, funding local uh, health services. He's an, a friend of the former British Prime Minister, Tony Blair, he donated I think just under half a million to the Labour Party in 2014, and then most recently to Boris Johnson's Conservative Party. So he's he's a, a significant figure in British public life. Adam, um, your piece reads as a chronology of the increasing discord between the Alam family and you know the whole city supporters. What's the genesis of the acrimony? Was there a start point when relations started to sour? Yeah, I, th- I think there's two or three. Um, points where, where things started to go wrong. So when they first buy, when they first buy the club, um, from, from what we were able to establish, they put in around £40 million into the club in the form of loans. So they would need to be paid back to the family um, along the way. So that, that, that side of it was positive and, and the team performed, performed well at the start. They've been in the Premier League three years this decade and they've reached an FA Cup final. The problems came when they decided to try and change the name from Hall City AFC to Hall Tigers. That was the first problem. Um, And the second issue which came down the line was issues around concessions for matchday prices. So there was no longer concessions for children or for pensioners. I wonder, um, one of the the, the bits of your article that I had to read twice was um, with regards to that Hull Tigers initiative or the attempts to change the the club's name, Apparently, that came from Assam Alam reading the Harvard Review and reading an article about how shorter club names and sort of um, bolder iconology um, were more profitable. Is there, is there anything more to that than, um, than, than just, just reading an article, reading a little feature? Well, it was really interesting because I spoke to the, the guy who was the chief executive at the time, Nick Thompson, who speaks on the record in the article, which helped us a lot. Um, and he... He, he brought this up and from his memory, it was actually a Newsweek article. And then I double checked it and Asa Malam had actually said previously that it, it, he saw it in the Harvard Business Review. Um, so he said this himself and it, it's, that's not a new revelation. But, but what's quite interesting is a lot of the, the most influential brand names are short. So you have Facebook, Twitter, um, Google. Um, Tifo. And I th- Tifo, exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Adam. The, the Thank athletic you. is three syllables, sadly. Um, too much, too but, many. Um, but so, so clearly, th- there was a, a marketing and commercial sense to it. But he was re- he just became very wedded to this idea. So that was one side of it. The other side of it, which is perhaps more disputed, is to do with a big argument with the whole city council, um, and that centred upon the stadium itself was is owned by, uh, the whole city stadium is owned by the council. 
and the Alam family wished to buy the stadium for themselves and they made an offer and they would have built on the surrounding areas. Um, but there was disagreement. There's a local fair around the, around the stadium, which is very bit important to the council and the local area. There was, there was a number of, dif- of different disagreements over it. Eventually, the council decided they did not want to sell and Alam was furious about this. And one theory is that as part of his frustration with the council, he would therefore remove the word city from Hull City AFC and replace it with Hull Tigers. So the way that Nick Thompson, the chief exec, explains it is that there was this double tractor thinking um, at the time, which said, on the one hand, um, that the commercial experts are all telling us, well, a shorter name is better for business um, overseas in order to grow the brand of the club. And on the other hand, we're also really disgruntled with the council. And if you bring those two things together, then it becomes quite a, quite a driving motivation for them. Okay, so let's go back to May 2016, because superficially, Hull City were a good news story. Um, they went up to the Premier League, they beat Sheffield Wednesday at Wembley in the playoff final. Um, and then by August, less than eight weeks later, Steve Bruce has walked out. The club only have 13 fit professionals. Mike Phelan, um, who previously uh, Alex Ferguson's assistant manager at Manchester United, is taking charge. And it becomes this season of doom. What happened between what happened in those eight weeks, first of all? And also, what was the prelude to that? What was the sort of the the um, the origin of um, Bruce's decision to resign? It's really interesting because I, you know, from covering Bruce's teams over the years or Bruce as a person over the years, you don't generally tend to hear about Steve Bruce having furious rounds with people. He's um, not militant, is he, Steve Bruce? No, yeah. no. I mean, and look at who he's working for this season. Um, <laughs> you know, so you know, he's clearly not afraid of working in challenging environments. Um, and you, you take you take that along, and at whole it, it just became startlingly toxic um in the he was there for four or five years and actually when he first got them promoted in 2013 um i think asem alam said he couldn't wish for anyone for a better person to, to work for the club what happened was asem alam became quite poorly um his son ehab took on a more leading day-to-day role at the club and ehab and steve bruce had a really fractious relationship bruce has said this himself um, on the record in an interview with the Yorkshire Post. So that's not, that's not in itself new. What, what is new is that in February 2016, there was a very explosive row between Bruce and Ihab Alam. Um, and this centred on um, an argument over a member of the sports science staff who had approached Bruce to say that a family member was unwell and they would like to take, um, to take some leave to take care of their family. And Bruce said, that's no problem. Go on, go and do whatever you need to do and I'll make sure there's paid leave. Ihab Alam then found out about this and said that it, it couldn't be done that way. And that culminated in this explosive row between Bruce and Alam, which, according to sources, led Alam to sack Bruce that day before reinstating him. Um, Hall, we should say, did not respond to this allegation individually, but did describe the contents of all our allegations as misleading, inaccurate and tittle-tattle. <laughs> Can I jump in here, Adam, and just say, uh, just for some context, how uh, usual is it that uh, an owner or you know a family member owner of a club will sack and reinstate a manager in the space of one day uh, because of a, a riotous row? Presumably that's very unusual. 
I, I would say that's that's very unusual. I mean, it's the sort of thing we don't we wouldn't ordinarily hear about. I mean, th- there is an, there is an amazing story. I think it's in um, Martin Edwards, the former Manchester United chairman's book, about a time where that he did where he and Sir Alex Ferguson had a similarly explosive argument one day where it looks like Ferguson pretty much was about to resign or pretty much walked out of the office saying that would that would be it and by the end of the day had called Edwards back and uh, decided he would be Manchester United manager again so it's not completely unheard of um, that these kind of arguments take place it's obviously unusual that they come to light. So actually, this is an anecdote from Barry Fry's autobiography. Right. Uh, when Barry was working uh, for Stan Flashman at Barnet, Stan Flashman, for those who don't know, was a kind of um, a, a mysterious ticket-touting figure um, who was a, a little bit of a rogue, shall we say. And I think, um, I think Flashman sacked him about 32 times in his entire time at Barnet. <laughs> um, and he never actually left the club until the last time. Um, Adam, do we know much about Ehab? I mean, your article paints him as someone that doesn't seem to have much genuine affection for the sport, but quite likes how it can provide uh, a, a sort of, I suppose, um, a muse for his interest in data. Um, where does, what, what, what is his backstory? Do we know? His backstory is that his father was very successful. Um, that's probably the most brutal in- interpretation. But yeah, that's, is, that's, that's yeah. quite cold. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... But to, but to be warmer, you know, he's been pretty much the full time CEO of the club for six years now. Um, he, uh, the, the impression we had from talking to people is that you know he, he's very much um, into polo. Um, yeah, he, he's you know, he's got a, he's got a good life um, as a result of you know very good family wealth. But you know, he has been running a football club for six years, and that deserves a level of credit um, in itself. And he, we know that he's very much, um, he's very much bought into data and analytics. He uses all the, all the data platforms that we hear so much about these days as well. Um, and, I, and I think it is worth cautioning, you know, even if the fans are disgruntled, on the other hand, Hull are a very unusual case in the championship of being a club that is run financially sustainably. Um, the problem is that to be financially sustainable in the short term in the championship does not equal being competitive in the championship. And that's, that's a marriage that's very, very difficult to reconcile for any club in the championship. What's really strange um, about some of the behaviours you describe in the article is that it's almost as if, and I'm speaking specifically about doing away with the concessions for young children and in some cases babies who are being asked to pay full adult prices for tickets, um, but also the anecdote you just told about sort of the the, the failure to or the refusal to um, to pay a, a grieving employee full pay. It's almost it's so deliberately provocative. It's very hard to understand the mindset of someone that would put himself in a situation to incur the kind of the wrath of the local community, as those things would always do. Have you um have you heard any kind of justification for those? Um, I think the first thing to say with the concessions is that they were restored last year. Um, after several years of, of not being in place. But that came amid a backdrop of spectacularly falling attendances at home, at home games. I mean, I think the Liverpool game that they won against Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool in 2017 um, was uh, 25,000 in the stadium. And there's been home games this season with, with just over 9,000, which, you know, even for a bottom half championship, that is alarmingly low. Um, for, for a club which is not you know Hull are not a small club in terms of the catchment area um, and local population 
So I think that's one of the reasons the concessions came back. Um, there was an argument at the time with regards to the uh, abandoning concessions that it would be a new membership scheme and a contactless scheme that meant it would in some way work out cheaper. But the local fans just did not dis- uh, did not agree with that whatsoever. Um, and then um, I've forgotten the second half of your question. <laughs> <laughs> it was about the um, it was about the refusal to pay the employees sick play. Yes. Um, after um, Bruce had guaranteed that he'd be uh, he'd be still full pay for his uh, for his leave. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, th- I think there was a number of employees um, who have been at Hull over the years who have who have found the working conditions difficult. You know, you look at the manager last year was Nigel Adkins. He left at the end of the season, didn't take up a new contract, and it's not like he was walking into another job. He's just not worked for a year. Um, so I think that speaks considerable volumes there was another example where Keith Burchin the um, who was the first team coach under Steve Bruce he turned up for the pre-season tour in 2016 and was told that he was no longer needed by the club Um, so you know there's there's different examples of the club being quite spendthrift in certain areas in terms of how people at the club are treated however you know again I think the owners would say it's good to run the club in a sustainable way one of the accusations, um, and this is made by Jeff Bealby, I hope I'm saying that right, um, chair of the Supporters Trust, is that the family run the club as their own cash cow. Um, you know, um, Asim Alam's uh, claim has always been that he's never taken a penny out of the club. Um, Jeff Bealby uh, disputes that. Can you, um, can you just walk us through the dynamic by which, um, and as this relates to the, to the loans um, that the family gave the club in the first place. Can you just walk through the um, the, the diets by which they make money out of the club or that they're accused of making money out of the club? Yes. Yeah, so, so the argument goes that when, when they came into the club, they had to inject a huge amount of money early on um, in order to ensure the survival of the club and that the club was able to, to, to be successful. Um, so I, th- I think that started around 40 million. And I, I think it's probably totaled around 80 million um, over the decade. And but that was always going to be something which had to be repaid. Um, and I think that the, own, the owners hoped that when they eventually sold the club, they would get what they'd put in, plus a bit of it, you know, plus a bit of interest. As it's gone along and as they've clearly lost that relationship with the fans and maybe that love of the club, um, increasingly it looks from the outside as though the stripping of playing assets has helped to reduce those loans. Um, so Hull would always argue that you know, when they sell a player, it's to reduce the loans um, that, the club, that the club owe, but those loans are owed to the owners. On top of that, the owners charge 4% on those loans, which is not unusual to charge interest on loans, but obviously it means that there is, I think there's been around 20, over 20 million that's gone out of the club um, through interest on loans now, which is a significant sum over that period of time. Um, and I think it would be fine if they were also investing in the playing squad in an ambitious way. I think when you just see money filtering out of the club, then it's very difficult for fans to get behind it. Um, one of the things that I've always found really strange about unpopular owners is why they cling on. I mean, especially when they're in, you know, not small towns, hold as a city. But when you get so much grief from the local population and the fans, you just think, goodness, wouldn't you just take, wouldn't you just settle for having, getting your money back and moving on and having a quiet life? And I think this is one of the, um, the areas which, which confused me, um, uh, about the sort of the, the Alam's, uh, strategy. Um, walk us, because there have been attempts to sell the club 
or there have been opportunities to sell the club at least. Um, in amongst those, there have been sort of um, time wasters and people that, uh, and, and tire kickers basically. But amongst the sort of the sincere attempts, what has been what has been the stumbling block and what has been the family's attitude though, to those attempts to uh, to purchase the club? Yeah, well, it looks like over the past four years, the valuation of the club has always been dictated by the loans that remain outstanding to the club. So our information is that the, to this day, the, the owners would like over 40 million because they are owed around 42 million still in loans. So they value the club at what they've what they feel they're owed by the club. The problem is you don't val- you can't that isn't how clubs are valued um, by potential bidders. They they will do mm. that based on um, the assets owned by a club. But Hull don't own their stadium. They don't really have any playing assets left to sell because they sold Jared Bowen in January to West Ham for a great sum of money. I think they were eighteen million as an initial fee, and then they also uh, sold Camil Grosicki to West Brom, um, who was another important player. So they they don't really have anyone left to sell as a significant sum. Um, a number of players are out of contract this summer as well. So they've got a big rebuilding job. So you don't own the stadium, you've got no playing assets left. That doesn't make it a hugely appealing um, project if you're also then being asked to pay off all these loans. Um, so I think that there's clearly a discord between, or a disconnect between the valuation that prospective bidders have, which is probably closer to around 20 million, um, compared to how the owners value their relationship with the club, which is in excess of 40 million. Um, so that, that's the first point. The, the, the second point is why would you stay when people are clearly unhappy with you? And also these are guys who, they live in the local area. They are part exactly. of the local community. It must be really unpleasant at times. Um, I'm sure they'll have had unpleasant experiences where people are unhappy with them. Um, and particularly when you set it against the, the cliff philanthropy in the local area in terms of the university and the NHS and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, and it's, it, it is puzzling. Uh, and I, I can't really work it out. Um, it may be that none of the bids that have come in were right. You know, we, we're, you know, we told the story of Peter Grieve, a US businessman who wanted to buy the club when Hall were promoted in the summer of 2016. Ihab Alam has previously gone on the record and said that the money wasn't forthcoming Greaves Consortium hugely contest that. The, you know, as ever, it's one, one man's word against the other in that case. Um, there's been other attempts. There's been an attempt with Saudi investors. There's been a Chinese consortium that went on to buy um, Reading. I think the Barnsley uh, Consortium also looked at it. So there's, there's clearly been opportunities, but for whatever reason, it's never materialised. One of the more recent issues, um, and this is not uncommon in football at the moment because, um, because of the lockdown um, and because the season has extended beyond the realms of most contracts a lot of clubs are finding themselves having to um, extend players by a year uh, by a month or six weeks um, one of the um, my more startling uh, anecdotes from this time has come from Hull um, so Eric Lehigh and Jackson Irvin captain and vice captain respectively were both in that situation both out of contract um, and they were both asked to play for free um, how does that work? <laughs> well, I, I think we're asked to play for, th- for three in inverted commas um, in the okay. sense that, so when a contract, a football contract usually expires in England on June the 30th, 
in, but the pay, the payment to staff would not stop on June the 30th because, like with many employment contracts, you get a month of severance pay um, when leaving when leaving an organisation. So ordinarily, they would they would stop working for the club on June the 30th, but they'd receive money at the end of July, um, or they'd recite, receive July's money. What's now happening um, is that players are being asked to play on into July, possibly the start of August. But what Hall said is, well, we're paying you July's money anyway, so just play on for us, and we won't give you the month on top, which other clubs are doing. Now, again, I have to say that Hall um, didn't deal with this detail specifically, but said that um, the, that the whole list of allegations put to them were inaccurate and misleading. Um, but you know, this is from, from several sources that Hull w- wanted these players to basically carry on playing um, into their month of severance pay. So as we talk now, we're recording this on uh, Friday the 26th. Are these two players at the club, are they, um, are they eligible for selection or have they left and uh, uh, are now free agents? No, they they won't play for the club again. Um, I think they're presumably was, still just within the boundaries of their contract. But as of yes, presumably the thirtieth yeah. of June, they'll be uh, or first of July even. Will they be free agents? Exactly. Um, so th- they won't be. Um, you know, there's nothing to stop. Um, I think Hull play Birmingham this um, this weekend. There's nothing to stop uh, the manager from picking them and then playing if they wish to do so. But they've not been training with the first team squad um, over the past week or so. Um, and there's there's no sign of that that changing. Those relationships are, are very much ruptured. But it's a huge decision for a captain like Eric Lehigh, hugely experienced defender in the championship, Jackson Irvine, the only player on Hall's books who's played more than a hundred times for the club. I mean, these are hugely significant figures when the club are mired in a relegation battle um, and really scrapping to to avoid relegation for the first time in fifteen years. So I think that was probably the point last week pre-publication where we realised, wow, this yeah, this story actually has the potential to have a really significant impact because it just struck it struck me as complete, really quite wild that you know you lose your captain and vice captain at such a crucial stage in the club's future. Hmm. Hey, well, a little change of pace here, Adam. You, you mentioned uh, pre-publication there. Obviously, I should uh, let listeners know that what we are discussing came from an investigation released for The Athletic, uh, for which you were the, the lead writer. Um, I just wanted to, to ask you, because this story is particularly interesting, but also presumably it's taken a long time to, 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 to develop. Um, how do you go about writing uh, an investigation piece like this? Or how, how do you go about investigating it? Um, well, we, we started looking at Hull pre, pre-COVID. Um, I stopped saying pre-COVID like it's BC. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, <laughs> um, but it, it, was, it was pre-pandemic. Um, they'd been on a terrible run of form since New Year's Day. Um, and I, th- I think they lost 4-0 against Leeds um, pr- uh, before everything shut down. And I remember just putting into one of our very many Slack channels that um, they may be an interesting thing to, to revisit. Obviously, everyone already knew about the controversy over the name change years ago, but then noticed they sold a couple of players in January. So we just thought we'd start making some calls. And we're very lucky at The Athletic in that we have so many writers who all have different contacts from different areas of football that we're able to bring together um, a real web of information. So we started doing that um, and then things shut down. So we put it on, on, on standby for a little bit. Um, and then, you know, I know Hall felt that 
we'd sort of intentionally dropped it on them on the Friday before the, the championship season resumed. It wasn't it wasn't really like that. It was purely a case of we drop these pieces when we feel we have the right amount of information to make it the most compelling piece possible. Um, and it was just a number of conversations that took place last week with contacts um, that, that made it very, very timely. And obviously the situation with the captain and vice captain as well. Um, and I was actually going to ask you specifically about that, because obviously, as I imagine is, is etiquette, you provided the information and the questions you have to the club a few days before release to ask for their comment, maybe not expecting a comment, I suppose, in, in normal circumstances. Um, but what actually happened was the club released a statement on their official website and tweeted about it and published your email in pr- what pretty much what looked like full. Uh, so in some ways, uh, I guess unusual for you uh, because you kind of became part of the story at that point. This is all before the story has even been released. Uh, just on a personal note, uh, what was that like? It's kind of weird. It is kind of weird um, because they published it before I'd finished writing it, um, which was most annoying. Um, but it was <laughs> it was more... Uh, we, we put the allegations to them on Friday uh, lunchtime and we... we as the, you know, Hall City fans will have seen the email. We we asked for a reply by the Monday morning. Um, but what they admitted was actually a few paragraphs where we said at the start we'd be open to a conversation with either a press officer or one of the or the owner or the vice chairman, either on or off the record, if they want to talk through any of the points, if they want to talk on the record about their ambitions for the club. You know, we're, we're absolutely open to all of that. And, and also with these kind of pieces, if a club comes back and says, you know, these are serious list of allegations we'd like a couple more days to go through them one by one and give proper replies we'd have no issue with that we did when we did a piece on Birmingham earlier in the season we extended deadlines twice I think so that would have been no problem and I I think the issue that Hull had was probably far more about the content than the timing Um, and I would also say you know I mean spoke to some reporters who work in politics and news and they they said they can't believe that they were even given two and a half days it was actually quite a a generous deadline i know people see oh you've asked people to to reply over the weekend but that's not that's not unusual in a world where sunday newspapers and the internet exists also when football happens at the weekend i mean that's when they're all working yeah 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 exactly um but i mean hollow entitled to respond however they wish um i would caution football clubs against publishing allegations because it probably makes journalists less inclined to go to them in writing um, with allegations pre-publication or um, in future. Um, you know, obviously we would still always put allegations to people, but you'd probably be far more restrained in terms of the level of detail that you go into. Um, so I don't think it's it's a path that clubs or institutions would follow, follow the lead. And I think it also rebounded quite spectacularly because all the comments under their tweet were, what are you doing? Because they failed to actually redact it properly. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Um, Adam, just to finish, um, and I'm going to ask you to guest here, guess here even. Um, what's so the future of I'm already guesting. <laughs> <laughs> guess a little bit more. I, um, what do you think the future is for Hull City? Um, scary and quite uncertain. Um, you know, I think this is probably the worst possible year to be relegated from the Championship to League One because, in essence, you're being relegated to a division at the moment that, that doesn't exist um, because no one knows yet when it's coming back, the form it's coming back in. The thought of being a League One club without matchday income, um, if, you know, if there's no vaccine found 
and we we restart the football league in September or whenever it's going to restart without fans and only on the iFollow service, which isn't working great so far. Um, that's that's quite a scary place to be in, um, and. I, I, you know, on top of that, you have a situation where I know agents have already been told by Hall that to not expect really any more than £5,000 a week salaries for most players, even if they stay up um, next season. So you're talking about a really modest budget in order for the club to remain, you know, to not be a loss-making football club, which in many ways is commendable, but it's also not reconcilable with being competitive. Um, so at the moment, it looks like you know that they are probably going to go down, and you know that means that the the value of the club's going to drop again. But the loans owned owed to the club or owed owed to the owners aren't dropping, and therefore the owners are going to have to drop their valuation surely if they wish to sell the club. Yeah. Oh well, disappointing times. That's uh, don't know quite what to say to that, Adam. But hey, thanks to you. For coming much appreciated um that's a pleasure it's a, it was a really interesting read and uh, as i said before I c- we can see obviously the time that it's taken so uh, congratulations uh, well done on a lovely piece of work thank you very much uh, and uh, hopefully we'll speak to you again in the soon uh, in next week don't know what's happening more stuff two podcasts a week tuesday Ooh, we, thursday uh, we, we do know we're having uh, joe and paul lake on oh yeah really interesting yep. yeah that's good isn't it and there's the alarm for the bank i live above if you can hear that in the background. <laughs> a little bit of a... Uh, it's like end of school couple. session. That's right, it did yeah, feel a little yeah. bit like that, didn't it? The bell's rung, the podcast is over. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.